Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. We've got something really interesting today. Alina, tell us who you've got. So we've got Andrew Chatterton, who works for the British Resistance Archive, and he's here to talk to us today about the auxiliary units of the Second World War. So yay, Second World War. Welcome, Andrew. Hello. Thanks for having me. This is going to be really good, because this is something I didn't even know existed until you messaged us and went, hey. (laughs) (laughs) So what? Me neither. So me neither. Some Second World historian, Second World War historian you are. (laughs) Right. Okay. What is the Coles Hill Auxiliary Research Team and what do you do? So we are a uh, volunteer kind of research organisation. So we've all got different jobs, but basically we research... Uh, the auxiliary units and uh, who would have played a part in the resistance had the Germans invaded Britain in, well, in the Second World War. So they are a highly secret group of civilian volunteers um, who would have uh, undertaken acts of sabotage and assassination anything that would have kind of slowed up the German advance and they were all signed official secrets acts most of them not telling anyone about them so yeah we're a group of volunteers who try and look into what they're up to where they were um, try and find their secret underground bases which I can talk about a bit more later um, because it's just fascinating it's one of those aspects of history so everyone thinks they know about <clears throat> Dunkirk in 1940 and Britain essentially being on its knees and old men in the LDV being given pitchforks and oh, you mentioned secret underground bunkers and I'm there Yay! <laughs> I know I, I can't tell you how cool it is uh, I, I just I just fell into it like 10 years ago I read a book it was the first book uh, published a, about these guys in the 1960s a guy called David Lamp published Last Ditch uh, and the veterans were furious when it got published by the way but I read this 10 years ago and I was like, how do I, how do I not know about this? This is, this is crazy. And then I just kind of fell into it there, but it's one of those kind of untold stories of, of, of the second world war. And as I said, like everyone thinks they already know about, about 1914 Britain on its knees, but actually there was so much being done to prepare for invasion that we were, you know, uh, whether it was likely or not, there was, there was whole layers of, of secret defense being put into place. So yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. I'm so excited right now. So tell Alex, us. Alex, sit down. Sit I down. I'm bouncing up and down. Who are the auxiliary units? Why were they set up? When? How? So uh, it was just after Dunkirk. So around about the same time as the, as, as the LDV. Um, and it seems to have started with a conversation between Eden uh, and Lieutenant General Andrew Thorne. So Eden went down to to see Thorne in, in the kind of Kent, Sussex area where, where 12 crew were. And basically they didn't have an anti-tank gun. And it was all looking very worrying. But it seems to be that they had a conversation. So Thorne used to be the military attaché in Berlin. And he grew to admire the uh, German peasantry militia, which was basically peasants who knew their local area intimately. 
uh, had for hundreds of years just kept weapons hidden just in case their land got invaded and they could disappear and come back and counterattack. And Thorne thought this was a really good idea. Uh, spoke to Eden. Eden spoke to Churchill. Uh, Churchill spoke to Ismay. It's a really high level stuff. Uh, and Ismay started uh, to look around for someone who could start up like a prototype uh, to see whether this would work in, in, in Britain. And he turned to a chap who worked for military intelligence research called uh, Peter Fleming. So Peter Fleming is the brother of Ian Fleming, the creator of James mm-hmm. Bond. So Fleming was not your classic British officer. Uh, he was a kind of pre-war explorer. He'd been in the jungles of Brazil. He'd been out to China. Uh, he uh, had done all kinds of uh, exploration and was a bit of a maverick, um, as you might expect. And so he started in Kent. They gave him permission to start in Kent. Uh, these patrols that would act as as kind of guerrillas and, and, and saboteurs. And he, he based himself at his house called the Garth basically filled this house full of explosives. It was like a health and safety nightmare. It was, it was awful. Like great big tables of uh, explosives, boxes of explosives as tables next to great big roaring fires. Uh, and he gathered together kind of local farmers, people who really knew that their local area um, could live off the land if necessary, uh, dug rudimentary kind of underground bases where they could stay for a night or two and store their, their weapons. He was able to give, get hold of weapons that the not only the LDV but the regular army were crying out for loads of explosives and it soon became really clear that this was a, a, a an idea that had fruition that could really work had we been invaded and this is slightly complicated by the fact that something similar was also being put together by the secret intelligence service SIS uh, so a chap called Major Lawrence Grand again a really Maverick, not your run-of-the-mill British officer. Um, they're all nutters, aren't they? They're, pre- they're like proper nutters. Like That's just, what makes like, it such a good story. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, exactly right. So, you know, you have this traditional thing of British officers being kind of uh, upper class and, and, and stiff and, uh, and, and not maverick in any way. And uh, all these guys are completely crazy. They're absolutely mental. And actually, it's really... So later on in the war, as the, as the regular army got a bit more... Um, control over over the auxiliary units they were ho- <laughs> horrified uh, at what was going on anyway so uh, so uh major lawrence grand grand was part of section d which was formed about 1938 basically it was there to find out alternative ways of of engaging with the enemy uh and he'd started something called the home defense scheme um which was essentially what fleming was doing as well purely coincidentally um and he was going around the country just um, uh, leaving weapons everywhere and uh, uh, putting explosives in bridges without permission and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I love this. <laughs> so eventually uh, it was decided they'd combine the two uh, under military intelligence research uh, and they got a chap called uh, M- uh, Colonel Colin Govins, uh, who later went on to, to SOE. Uh, so he's another interesting chap. Uh, he was a gunner in the First World War. He'd been part of the Allied intervention during the Russian Revolution. He'd been in Ireland, he'd been in India, and he'd led the, um, the 
uh, what were they called? Independent companies uh, in Norway uh, in, in the early part of the war. So again, not your run of the mill uh, type of chap. And he was tasked with taking these prototype patrols and extending them out to the most vulnerable counties uh, in, in the country. So essentially the, the East Coast, the South Coast, Southwest and South Wales. They didn't really see the threat on the West Coast at all. So nothing coming from Ireland. They, as far as we know, didn't have anything from kind of South Wales up. We haven't seen any evidence of that. But frankly, he was so secret. Who, who knows, really? Uh, so he was tasked with this, with extending these patrols across the country. And he did this by employing uh, intelligence officers. So officers, most of whom he knew, most of whom actually fought with him in the independent companies in Norway. Uh, and he gave them counties that they had some affiliation with uh, to go down and start patrols in, 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 in various counties. So uh, he sent them off with, with a Humber snipe each and a driver and basically a free hand in, in setting these things up. So off these intelligence officers went, uh, the length of the country, and kind of looked at their counties and thought of... Um, key areas where they, where a patrol would be super useful. So they're never or very rarely right on the coast. So they're usually five or six miles inland. So they're not going to be caught up in the, in that initial landing, but are there to, to, to sit and, and, and wait essentially. Yeah. Just lure them in and then hit. Exactly right. Mm. Exactly right. So uh, yeah. So, so these guys went out and basically their job was to find uh, patrol leaders um, who they then had a free hand in setting up their own patrol. So, and it kind of went from there. So tell us, how secret was it all really? It was super secret. So, uh, so the patrol leaders, uh, once they'd been spoken to by, by these intelligence officers, all had to sign the Official Secrets Act. They then went out and uh, basically recruited their own patrol. So they, they were given loads of... Loads of um, trust in terms of who they could recruit and where the location of their operational base, their, their, their secret underground base was. Um, and most of the patrol leaders were, were like they were in Kent. So farmers or farm workers, gamekeepers, those type of people who, who knew their land intimately and further up North, quite a few miners and in South Wales. And they would often recruit relatives or uh, colleagues or, or known associates, or we've got, we've got quite a few examples of gamekeepers recruiting poachers uh, <laughs> because they knew the poachers knew the land better than them and they could definitely live off the land. So there's, it's, it's, it's fascinating the, the types of people that were recruited. So these guys were recruited. Each patrol was like six to eight men generally. Um, all of them had to find, sign the official secrets act uh, and they told literally no one so it, the, the levels of secrecy were were incredibly high so we've got examples of where <clears throat> the work we do with uh, uh the auxiliary research team we we put stuff in in newspapers and ask for information and we've had examples of where family are sitting around reading the sunday paper over sunday lunch and suddenly the granddad pipes up oh, i was not not so recently obviously but mm. i was in that and no he's not said anything so the wife he was married to during the war had no idea what was he was involved in this um we've got examples of two brothers in essex who were in neighboring patrols and they didn't find out that 
either of them were, were in the auxiliary units until about 2001, something like that. So they not only did they sign the Official Secrets Act, they kept it secret as well. They did an amazing job in doing that. Um, so these patrols were, were recruited. Um, they all knew their local area intimately. Some were recruited directly from the LDV. So some of the, some of the better recruits from the LDV were, were recruited off that. Um, so we think there was about 4,500 recruited across the country. So from, if you think from kind of like the outer Hebrides down to Cornwall and, and in South Wales, um, so that's, you know, and each patrol's made out of six to eight men. That's quite a few patrols the length of the country. That's um, mad. How dangerous was their work? So really dangerous. So their, their, whole, their whole mission was essentially to disrupt the invasion. They weren't there for, they weren't like the French resistance in terms of there for after occupation. There was no, there was no, uh, no thought that that would be the case. They had enough rations for two weeks and and after that they're expected to live off the land but essentially two weeks was their life expectancy wow uh, it was a, it was really a suicide mission and if you think that you know some of the kids were 16 year olds were being signed up for this um so none of them really had any expectation of living post post invasion and their role was was really dangerous so they would as soon as the germans entered their area they would uh, disappear to these underground bases and then from there they would come out mainly at night to blow up ammo or fuel dumps uh, transport aircraft bridges railways um, disrupt convoys anything really that slowed down the advance and gave the regular army time to to uh, get themselves together and and to and to counter-attack um, but after a few days of this, and as we see in kind of occupied Europe later in the war, you know, the Germans were, were pretty quick to, to find these guys and to hunt them down and, 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 and to get rid of them. Um, and the nature of what they did meant they handled lots of explosives. So in that, in that, in that way, it was, it was really, really dangerous. They had to, they were trained in uh, unarmed combat as well. So they were never... They were never there to get into a running battle with the invading army, but but their role was to try and get access to the stuff they could blow up, essentially. Yeah. So they were they were given they were given SAS style training um, in in terms of unarmed combat and and how to get rid of sentries and how to leave the sentry's body in a way that would scare other soldiers, uh, for example, which which was used on the continent as well. Um, so they were, they were given the Fairburn Sykes fighting knife. Um, they learned how to approach um, silently. We've got some great video of uh, two elderly gentlemen uh, sneaking up on each other and then uh, showing how they would use the knife <laughs> back in the day. Uh, and uh, once they gained access, they would blow it up and then, and then move away back to their bunker where they would stay stay uh, during the day and then come, again, come up again at, at night to, to blow up more stuff. Um, so it was really dangerous and none of them really had any expectation of, of living past two weeks. They had the thing of, of, of if they were captured, the rest of the patrol was basically told to, to shoot them just in case they gave the, the whereabouts of, of the operational base or of, of, of the other members. They were given suicide pills, um, 
So if they were captured, they could they could commit suicide rather than giving anything away. And actually, around that, the the if anyone accidentally stumbled across their operational base or got an idea that something was going on, uh, these they were often going to be the first targets these guys would have taken out. So in, in, in a lot of cases, the first people killed by the auxiliary units might well have been British civilians uh, who had either stumbled across their operational base or thought that something was going on just in case the Germans got hold of them. There's a case in Cornwall where they're, uh, an operate, they dug their operational base, which I will talk about in a bit. Um, and it was overlooked by this cottage where this elderly couple lived. And so the first people that this patrol would have to have got rid of was this, was a, was an elderly couple just in case they gave anything away. Well, you can't shoot the old people. That's actually <laughs> really horrific. It is horrific. It is. And, and it's really, so obviously most of them have sadly passed away now, but when, when you speak to these guys, they said, yes, it, w- it would have been horrific, but they, they don't seem to have any doubt that they would have carried out this to, to, to their full extent. And, and because they saw the bigger picture and they knew that this was, was so important, that, that that's what they had to do. Some patrols were issued with a sealed envelope with targets they would have to take out immediately. So they were not only were they issued with kind of silent weapons, they also had a they were given some of the first Thompson submachine guns, for example, and they had a .22 sniper rifle with a telescopic sight. And they were given this um, sealed envelope, uh, which contained the names of some of the British uh, civilians they would have to get rid of. So it might be someone high up in the police who would have to have checked their background um, to allow them to, to be part of the auxiliary units. It, it seems likely that the uh, intelligence officer who brought them all together would also have to have been uh, assassinated because he knew where every patrol was. So he was on someone's... So this poor intelligence officer who went round and uh, who uh, gathered all these men together might have been one of the first targets. Whether they knew that or not, we don't know. Um, this just needs to be a film, doesn't it? It really does. Uh, they're also tasked with getting rid of British collaborators. So anyone they saw... Uh, collaborating with the Germans, they were given permission to get rid of, get rid of high-ranking German officers where possible as well with the sniper rifle. So it's it was, like, if in doubt, shoot everyone. Well, essentially, <laughs> essentially yeah. I, I, anything that you thought... So, so they were given... Once the, once the Germans were in their area, they had no way of being contacted. Uh, so there was no, there's no phone line. There's no, they didn't have a, a, a radio sets nothing like that so they were completely on their own so they had to make judgment calls and they were trusted to do that and their level of training allowed them to do that so yeah essentially if you thought someone was was passing on information or you thought getting rid of a particular person would would help disrupt uh, the invading force then then yeah go for so it. this could just be like let's just take the cast of dad's army and say they were all in on it Right. if you decided you didn't like corporal jones you'd just shoot him and go oh, i saw him give a sausage to a german it's interesting, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Whether, whether personal grudges uh, would have come into it. It's an interesting... I never what we that. need, and History Hacker copyright in this right now with Andrew, is an alternative history where the Jim- Germans do get ashore and we follow the uh, plight of these guys. Yeah, I think it'll be, it'll be fascinating. There's been a couple of... An auxiliar uh, veteran published a book 
called Gone to Ground, which would kind of followed that. But yeah, there's not, and the, um, there's a film called Resistance, which mm, vaguely followed it. But yeah, nothing really. It'll be, it'll be fascinating to see. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know what? Listening to you talk is basically Britain got ahead of the game, basically. So Poland got stuck with the invading Germans. They had to build their home army, basically, from the ground. Yeah. And um, under a lot of, you know, various different pressure points and whatever, but Britain had time to develop this, you know, they had time to train, they had time to, you know, gather the weapons while in Poland. I mean, it's really interesting being able to compare the two. I'm listening to you talk and I'm having the whole Polish side, just the, the whole film just going on in my head. Uh, I, I love this. Just, yeah, it's great. Yeah. And you're, and you're right. And it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because this, I mean, it's been said before, but this, the auxiliary units and another group, which I'm not sure I have time to talk about today, but the special duty section, which are essentially civilian spies and civilian wireless operators mixed in with some ATS girls. They were the first pre-prepared resistance force, um, you know, in, in, in the country and certainly in, in, in the Second World War. Every, everywhere else was reactive because of the nature of, of, of the speed of invasion or, 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 the, or the nature of, of, of occupation. Whereas we did have the opportunity to, to, to organize ourselves. And that's what I was saying at the beginning, when everyone thinks of, of Dunkirk and, and the summer of 1940 and, you know, Britain actually being on its knees and, and, and just waiting for invasion, it just, just isn't true. There was so much being organized and put into place that, that it would have been a, you know, the, the likelihood of invasion is, is limited anyway, but, but it, it wouldn't, it would, it, it certainly wasn't us on our knees. There was, there was lots, lots happening. After, let's talk about training. How did they get these people ready? How did they teach these mad old blokes how to wield a knife on each other? Well, yeah, so they weren't. Yeah, so the, the they weren't all old. Most of them weren't old, and most of them were farmers or you know strong young men in reserved occupations. So mm-hmm. most of them weren't weren't dad's army. Uh, there were there were there were a few, um, but but most of them weren't. And the, the training was of really really high standard. Um, so they quickly established a headquarters and training centre in a place called Coleshill House, which is near in the village of Coleshill near Swindon. And this was a huge, uh, huge country house with lots of land in the middle of nowhere where they could blow up stuff without attracting too much attention. But the way that they got these auxiliary, uh, auxiliary uh, guys there was they were just sent a letter saying, Okay, you have to get a train to Highworth, which is the nearest nearest town, and go and report to the 
Highworth post office. So <laughs> these guys from all over the country uh, would turn up at Highworth and stroll into the uh, Highworth po- post office where they'd have to give some kind of code word. And there, uh, the, the Highworth postmistress was, I'm sure our family won't mind me saying, a quite miserable Victorian lady called Mabel Stranks. <laughs> <laughs> and Mabel, uh, would, uh, once they'd given the password, would uh, go out the back and call up Coles Hill, Coles Hill House and say, I've got so-and-so here. Uh, he's given the correct password. Can you come and collect him? And then Coles Hill would send up a, send up a truck, um, bung these guys in it, cover it up, and then drive an elongated route back to, to Coles Hill House. So by the time these guys arrived, they had no idea where they were. Um, they'd just arrived this great big stately house. And there they would be given training on everything that they needed. They're given training on how to dig their operational base, training in silent killings, training in how to blow things up. They were... They were captured German tanks there. There were captured German planes there. They were, they were practicing on, they were practicing kind of moving at night and map reading at night and basically everything they needed. Um, and then it'd be kind of two or three members of the patrol would go and do this. And then they'd go back and, and train the, the rest of the patrol into, into what they'd learned during a weekend. So these guys were working hard on the farm, you know, a, a bit like the home guard, they'd be working all day long. Uh, and then uh, training at night with their patrol and then going away for weekends uh, to Coles Hill House to, to 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 get this training, and all the while, none of their relatives or friends realised what they were in. They thought they were in some kind of home guard thing, not really associated with the local patrol, but doing something else. But they had no idea where they were or what they were doing. And in fact, we've got some examples of of guys getting sent white feathers because, um, as far as most people were, were concerned, they they weren't in the local home guard unit because they weren't patrolling. Um, and they weren't turning up at the, at the Sunday service at the local church. They were just mm-hmm. doing their, doing their, just doing their farming or whatever it might be. So, um, but the trainings were of a really, really high standard. And some of the uh, near the end of the war, some of the guys um, were, were joined joined the SAS and SOE um, because they were kind of ready made to to join that because that's the, the level of, of training that these guys had got. And these were just you know, as I said, civilians, just normal civilian guys. So really really high standard of training so alex and i are dying to know because i can i can just hear her jumping up and down like a child in a sweet shop like tom um, Cruise on a sofa pretty much. <laughs> um where are these bunkers actually do you know what tell us more about the bunkers so the it's, it's interesting so the bunker so from peter fleming's experiments in kent it was clear that these guys couldn't go and blow up stuff and then uh or kill someone and then go home to their wife and kids so uh, because they would be suspected and all that kind of stuff. So they'd have to have somewhere where they could stay for the duration of the period that they were active. So he, as I said, he kind of dug basically rudimentary holes in the ground where they could stay for a couple of days. And once this was, the auxiliary units was kind of extended out nationally, the, these were then replicated. And to start with, the patrols did dig their own. And unless you had specific expertise, they soon became aware that breathing underground wasn't very easy and uh, there was, and digging in sand wasn't a particularly stable uh, way of, of doing an underground base. So there weren't many successes initially. But then in kind of late 1940, 1941, 1942, they brought in Royal Engineers from outside of the county. So, for example, if you're, if you're a patrol in Devon, a Royal Engineer 
the group might come from from the north and come down and dig your your operational base essentially they're they look a bit like anderson shelters and sometimes they're confused with anderson shelters just randomly in in woods it's like elephant iron curved over um with a vertical entrance with a disguised hatch so the disguised hatch might be opened by uh, you rolling a marble down what, look, look, what looks like a tree trunk, uh, but actually it rolls underground and lets the guys know that you're there and they push it up. Some are done by a counterweight system. So you would either stamp on the on the entrance and it would raise itself up and you go down the ladder. Uh, others, you'd pull what looks like a tree root and that would open it up. Um, so they're all almost all standard design. It kind of varies a little bit by county by county. But if you imagine a, a vertical shaft with a disguised entrance going down, the ladder going down, and then you go into what looks like a, an Anderson shelter. And then in there would be your bunks, uh, tables, um, storage. Most of the explosives they stored sensibly out of the operational base. They had uh, dug other holes to, to store that. Um, and there would be, but there would be an Elson toilet sometimes, chemical toilet, which I imagine got pretty horrific. Um, and sometimes a cooker, and obviously a cooker isn't ideal because it smells. And if you're trying to keep secret, that's not ideal. And obviously you need somewhere to vent the smoke as well. And they come up with ingenious ways of of, of uh, dispersing the smoke through hollow trees, so it disperses at the top of the tree in a way, so the Germans wouldn't be able to see you, see you kind of cooking from underground. It's and brilliant. Smart. Most of them, really smart yeah and most of them also had an escape tunnel at the back so so if the germans were there found somehow found your disguised entrance um and dropped a grenade down there'd be a blast there's usually a blast ball at the at the bottom of the of the shaft and drops a grenade down it'd give you a chance to escape most of the veterans we spoke to really thought that was just for morale there's no the germans had discovered your operational base you're basically done um but uh, it would give you an opportunity to to maybe get away. Uh, so there's an escape tunnel as well. Um, and <laughs> essentially, uh, at the end of the war, most of them were just left. They just left them and got on with their farming lives. Uh, and then over the years, particularly finding the 50s and 60s, children started to find them and crawl inside and find God knows what that was left in there. Um, and then over, obviously over the over the over the last 70 80 years they've all started to to collapse and 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 fall in and so most of the operational bases that we find now are are collapsed it's just holes in grounds with with bits of elephant iron sticking out but occasionally you're you're occasionally if you're super lucky you'll find an intact one um and they're always in as i said they're, they're kind of five to six miles inland generally in a isolated spot usually in a forest or a copse um, and uh, miles away from anywhere if, if possible. Some of them had um, observational posts, um, so a small dugout um, away from the op- uh, operational base where one of the patrol members during the day could keep a lookout at um, what was going on. So they were always positioned so you'd have great views over the local area so they could see what convoys were going and, and pick targets, but also could alert the patrol if a german patrol was coming on the lookout some of them were even attached by uh, telephone wire so there'd be a telephone in the uh, observational place down to the operational base so they could give them a, a quick warning to either get out or to 
or to prepare to fight. Love how much thought has gone into this. Do you know anything about specific targets and objectives? So there, there is quite varied and it's really quite dependent on, on, on whereabouts in the country the patrols were. But, but generally, they were positioned near at least kind of one good target. So whether that be a big house, a big mansion house that would likely have been taken by the Germans as a, as a headquarter uh, or an airfield or... A, uh, a key bridge uh, or a key uh, road. So, uh, so I'm in Devon, and a lot of the patrols, certainly in East Devon, are located along the edge of the main road coming out of Exeter, moving moving east. So their role would have been to 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 do as much disruption to that road as as, as possible. So blowing up bridges and um, transport. Some are located near near airfields. So if the German, so if the Luftwaffe took over. Uh, a particular airfield they could go in they could go in and blow up the planes um, and ammunition and fuel dumps um, but basically in terms of specific targets it was anything they thought uh, would disrupt the the invading forces um, uh, so whether that is transport or, or, or headquarters or um, the assassination of someone um, they were they were essentially left to their own own devices brilliant no accountability, no. Uh, just no rules. Just, just make sure as many Germans cop it as possible. Yeah, and yeah, or, or yeah, as many Germans cop it, or as many vehicles are put out of action, or as many planes are put out of action. And as I said, they were not, they were, they were never there as a, they were never thought of as a resistance force after occupation. Do you know who this is perfect for? Quentin Tarantino, call us. <laughs> Can I star in it? I want to star in it. You are nearly, nearly psychotic enough to be in it, I think. <laughs> Can I be a milkmaid? <laughs> <laughs> Not if you're going to be like those Polish milkmaids on Eurovision a few years ago. No. <laughs> no, 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 no. Anyway, should we Moving move on? on? Should we move Moving back on. to the history? Yeah, so you said basically they were kind of just left to their own devices at the end of the day. So theoretically, well, when did their service actually end? So they were stood down officially in November 44. I mean, obviously the threat of invasion had diminished substantially since then. And actually during kind of 43, early parts of 44, a lot of the secrecy had gone and there were kind of inter-patrol competitions at Coles Hill and things like that. Um, And actually some patrols from, in fact, all around the UK were sent down to the Isle of Wight during D-Day in the run-up to and during D-Day to guard the island in case of in case of German counterattack, um, but essentially their, their role was over, and they were stood down in in, in forty four. Um, they were given basically a letter that said, uh, "Yeah, thanks for your service. That was great. Uh, you're not going to get any recognition." <laughs> That's pretty really mean. So when <laughs> the grandchildren go, "What did you do in the war?" Nothing. Yeah, and the, you know we've got lots of examples of gra- you know kids and you know grandkids saying, "Why? Why didn't he say anything?" Because basically. Uh, we just thought he was a, a farmer uh, who didn't do anything or didn't do anything spectacular. And in fact, he was a highly trained killer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all of those times I misbehaved as a child. Little did yeah. I know that yeah. granddad could have ended me. Yeah, correct. And uh, they were given a, um, so they had this rather demoralising uh, stand-down letter and uh, they were given a, given a lapel badge um, that is one of the, usually one of the only signs that we have from from relatives that their their uh, relative was in, involved in the, to the 
But that that was it. And actually, to be fair, most of the guys that we've spoken to over the years were okay with it because they didn't think they'd done anything because they were never called upon. Um, and they were quite happy to go back to their farming life and, and just get on with it because they they feel like they felt like they they you know weren't called upon and so all that training was you know they didn't, didn't have to do anything but you know the, essentially what they were prepared to do was was a was a, a suicidal mission to to do as much as possible in a very short amount of time to to disrupt a, an invading force which is incredibly brave and you know these as I said before some of these were basically kids being signed up so. Um, they didn't get any recognition. Um, the, there was a, I think someone must have released some information right at the end of the war. Cause there's a couple of articles about the British marquee, um, very, very short articles that appeared in some regional newspapers. Um, and then there was nothing until I mentioned David Lamp's last ditch in the, in the sixties. And then the, as I said, the, Veterans are furious because they were like, well, why do we sign the official secrets out and keep this all secret if some guy can just come along and write a book about us? Yeah. <laughs> um, so very happy with that. And then there was another period of, of, of hardly anything um, until the 90s, really, uh, when the, there's, a, there's an official museum, quite a small museum in Parnham in, in Norfolk that was set up um, as part of the, the remembering the, the auxiliary units. Um, and then we kind of we've campaigned hard to get more recognition and we um, a few years ago we managed to get permission to to march past the cenotaph on on remembrance sunday which was which is great and it gave a few of the veterans a chance to have that public recognition in fact what a guy from wales a veteran from wales only told his whole family uh that he was involved the day before he was coming to london to march past. <laughs> yeah they, they, they there was hardly any recognition and you know from from november 44 onwards really really hardly anything. well thank you so much for coming on because when you sent me a message first of all asking if you could come on and you said what you were going to talk about i was like i don't have fucking heard of this who is this guy what's he going on about so resistance in britain is he mad is this another loony contact but no it's real and it's brilliant you're gonna do you know what that's a great overview but Promise us you'll come back and tell us about a few of your favourite characters who were involved yeah, in Yeah, definitely will. And I a few of their yarns, because I think it'd be great fun. Yeah, well, I definitely will. And there's actually there's a whole different section called the Special Duty section on who were civilian spies uh, and wireless operators who they basically hired girl guides and scouts and doctors to spy on the German army and then pass messages uh, via runners who would then give it to a civilian wireless operator in the roof of a pub. There's, there's an example with Devon who a civilian wireless operator who built himself a bunker outside underneath his outside toilet. Uh, uh, so that's a whole deal. I'd, I'd love to come back on and, and chat about that. As well. Absolutely. There's so many layers of secrecy around, around this time that, that people just haven't heard of. So yeah, very happy. And proper eccentric British secrecy as well, oh, yeah, which we love. Completely mad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, thank you very much. My pleasure. Join us tomorrow. This was my gift to Alina. Carla Ionescu joins us to talk all about Artemis and why she is completely underrated and she is the best goddess ever and you should know more about her. They had an absolute blast doing this one. Uh, There's a bit of fangirling on and a bit of a, whatever the female equivalent of a bromance is, this is it. So join us for that.
don't forget you can become a patron of history hack for as little as a dollar a month just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com it will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.